Hello and welcome to series two of the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. In 2018, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And since then, I've made it my mission to make the most of each and every passing day. This has led me to cycle on a tandem from Bristol to Beijing. COVID got in the way and I had to take a break, but now I'm back on the road. Today, I've been cycling in literally freezing conditions here in southern Ukraine. An icy headwind has been buffeting me all day. I've been crawling along at less than 10 miles an hour. To be honest, it's been pretty bleak and difficult. But in contrast to these frigid surroundings, the sounds that were going into my ears were ones of warmth energy and giving me a reassurance that there are some people in this world making some incredible change happen and for that reason I am really excited to share this week's episode of Facing Up which was recorded when I was back in Romania. This is the final episode of season two of the Facing Up podcast. Thank you so much for being with us throughout this series and Keep your eyes peeled during the festive season for a Christmas special. Hello and welcome to the Facing Up podcast with me, Luke Grenfell Shaw. This week, my guest is Dr. Elo Amoako. I'm in Romania and Ella is in Ghana. So we're really crossing the continents in, in this conversation. Ella is a pediatric oncologist and she set up the PJAC Oncology Center in Cape Coast in Ghana and we are really going to be talking today about some of the challenges facing Ella as she set up this clinic and then also the more general larger picture challenges facing children who are diagnosed with cancer in Ghana. Ella thank you so much for joining on the Facing Up podcast. Thank you so much, Luke, for having me. I've got to ask, to start with, what got you into paediatric oncology? It doesn't seem like the most logical thing from at least my standpoint. So what <laughs> what got you into it? Okay, so I'll just uh, make a little correction. I'm a paediatric oncologist in training. I'm still in training. I'm not there yet, <laughs> but yeah, great. What got me into paediatric oncology? First, I always tell people that even being a doctor was not part of the big dream. And then when I finally became a doctor, pediatrics was not part of the dream, but pediatrics came calling. I realized that I really loved working with children and seeing how resilient children were. And then even doing pediatrics, it was always, uh, I probably do intensive care or genetics. And then during my residency, I worked in the pediatric oncology unit. And I saw firsthand what the children went through and then getting to know the situation in the country, the number of children who actually battle with cancer and the number of children who actually present and the fact that there were very few pediatric oncologists in Ghana, I decided to choose to do pediatric oncology. Can you just give us a bit more of a background to the number of pediatric oncologists in Ghana, the number of cases you get a year, the healthcare provision, who pays for treatment. Can you give us an overview? Because in the UK, there's the NHS, 
you turn up to the hospital, you get treated free at the point of service. What's the situation in Ghana? Right. So uh, we expect about 1,300 children to present with cancers every year. Now, unfortunately, there's just two big comprehensive treatment centers in Ghana for those 1,300 children. Unfortunately, over the years, every year, those treatment centers see just about 300 cases. This means that up to 1,000 cases are not being seen. So the question is, what happens to that 1,000 cases? Where are they hiding? Now, a lot of people are not even diagnosed. A lot of people don't even present to the hospitals because access to treatment for these children is it's, it's inaccessible, let me put it that way. Yes, so there are five pediatric oncologists in the whole of Ghana as of today. Wait, there's five, five people yeah. in the whole yeah. of Ghana to treat the children. Yeah, yeah. And how many, <laughs> yeah. what's, what's the population of Ghana as well? Just to, what's the pool? About 30 million people with a majority being the young because we have a younger population. You can imagine what great this service is to these children. And then with all of that, treatment for childhood cancers is not on our national health insurance policy. Now, this means that parents would have to pay out of pocket for treatment. And it doesn't come very cheap. Yes, according to WHO standards, we have a relatively cost-effective treatment when it comes to childhood cancers in Ghana. But for the average Ghanaian who lives on less than a dollar a day, that is going to be very expensive. So, yeah, these are some of the challenges that we face that briefly and already. And just if you're if you're living on a dollar a day, that that is clearly <laughs> very, very little money. But just how much does treatment like a standard course of chemotherapy cost? Just how right. inaccessible is it? And is that the only factor that makes treatment inaccessible as well? Is it just the money? No. So it's not just the money, mm-hmm. but so there was a study that proved that we childhood cancers in Ghana can cost about $500 to $8,000, depending on the type of cancer. And this includes treatments and radiology and stuff like that. So that's cost effective because if you can spend, say, yeah, $8,000, $10,000 on the whole treatment cost, that's actually cost effective. Now, but if I'm living on a dollar a day and he told me that I have to pay this money <laughs> for treatments, then I don't think I'll come. Okay, so that is just one factor. And then inaccessible health care. Some people never actually get diagnosed because they don't see the right people. And then there is the issue of misdiagnosis. And then there's some cultural beliefs where people have some illnesses and then they believe that this illness is probably a curse or something else. It's not, it's a spiritual illness in quotes. And then most of the patients would present very, very late. And this is also because of inaccessible healthcare to those patients. Most of them who present late would probably be malnourished. So it makes treatment really, really difficult because you're starting at a certain level where this patient is so malnourished and you know how the effects of chemo, even on a healthy body, or imagine that on a malnourished person. And then because there are just two comprehensive treatment centers, some people actually do start treatment, but because they have to make that journey, maybe they they have to make a nine-hour journey every week to receive chemotherapy, they tend to abandon treatment, okay? 
so yeah in the long run these are some of the challenges that we face well so it's <laughs> by no means just the economic challenge though that is incredibly significant for a probably what, like over half the, the population of, of Ghana, probably yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah. And then there's also the case of like, just getting diagnosed is not straightforward because people are not necessarily near centers. They might be nine hours away. Yeah. They might be seeing some people who don't recognize this as a cancer. And they might also just say, this could be a punishment from the powers that be this is right. just part of life there's nothing that can be done so there's a whole right. host of factors that right. mean that out of what you expect there would be 1300 cases of new cases of cancer coming up a year across the country on average only 300 are seen yes now is this right. what drove you to set up a new center in Cape Coast, which is about three, four hours drive to the west of Accra, the capital. Yeah, uh, yes. I just want to frame this as well. You're a pediatric oncologist in training. I think yes. this is incredible that you're not, you, you don't feel like you need to be a consultant or, you know, have got a professorship by your name. You're doing this at a really early stage. And I think that is just fantastic. It's inspirational. So what, <laughs> Thank you. what pushed you in that direction? Right. It's much more uh, work to do this. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yes, I, I completed my residency training in pediatrics in 2019. And I had to leave Accra back to Cape Coast. Now, whilst in Accra, I noticed that most of the cases used to come from the western region, which is closer to Cape Coast, and then the central region, which is which Cape Coast is in, right? So honestly, initially, I never thought about starting anything, to be very honest. And then I think somewhere in November 2019, just a few months after I had returned to Cape Coast, we had a child who came, he came in, we're able to do the initial diagnosis, the biopsies, and then the results came and it was a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, unfortunately, by the time we got the results, he had like really bad. So there's uh, something called tumor lysis syndrome, which is one of the oncological emergencies. Just means that tumors that have a very high turnover, patients tend to suffer from what we call tumor lysis syndrome. And that alone can push you into acute kidney injury. Now, this patient... So that's because uh, you've got lots of cancer cells dying, right? You're talking yes. they're going to die. So there's a lot of yes. things for the kidneys to process, lots of chemicals yes. to mop up in the blood. Yes. And so the kidneys are going into overdrive. That's yes. the science yes. behind it. You know, yes, that's the science Struck behind me. it. Very bad science. <laughs> no, it's great. Okay, so as we're sitting there, the boy is going into acute kidney injury. The plan was to transfer him to Accra. Then I called my professor in Accra, Prof. Uh, Rena, Donna Rena, she's the first pediatric oncologist in Ghana. And I call her and I'm like, Prof, we have this case. I'm going to send him over to Accra. And she's like, no, I don't think he's going to make it. Can you start something over there? And I'm like, um, well, she's like, well, you did this when you were in Accra. It's something you can do. I'm like, oh, okay. So what she did wow. was she sends me the protocol and then we get the medication and then we start treating so we, we had to do some dialysis and then we gave him some chemo 
then we had to do dialysis. And then, I mean, we were done with the first part, like the first cycle of chemotherapy. And uh, with lymphomas especially, you actually see the change after even one cycle. The patients tend to do really great. And so this boy was doing so well. And then I called him. I'm like, okay, we are done with the first cycle. So I will send him to Accra for the second cycle. Now, this boy had traveled like five hours away from Cape Coast. That means that the drive to Accra would be about eight to nine hours from his hometown. And Prof was like, nah, I don't think so. If you were able to do the first, that, that was the most difficult stage when he was in acute kidney injury. So if you're able to do that, it means you can do you can do the rest because it's going to be a bit easier than the first time. So suddenly you are landed with this patient. I know. <laughs> so I am sitting there. I'm like, oh, I didn't want this kind of responsibility. But OK, that's fine. <laughs> so we go ahead, myself and I have colleague pediatricians in Cape Coast. And we went ahead and we were treating this boy. And when it was time for him to go home, he went home and they came, they complied till the end of uh, of chemotherapy and he's doing great now. So now we're able to do that first case, whenever a case came to Cape Coast and we, the plan was to just try and diagnose them and then ship them over to Accra. And whenever I call, the next question is, can you get those chemotherapy agents? And if you can, then you should go ahead and do, I'll send you the protocol. And so that's how it's been. And since November 2019, up to date, we've seen about 48 children with cancers, most coming from the Western and Central region. So if we didn't start this small, we'll probably have missed all those cases. They'll probably not even end up in Accra. So, so what you're saying is you've treated 48 children who, if you hadn't treated them in Cape Coast, they just wouldn't get treated at all and chances are they I guess they would be dead yeah they'll probably not go to Accra I mean a lot of people like leaving say western region and going to Accra for treatment to a lot of people it's difficult people people don't want to hear that I have to go all the way there for treatment okay this is it that's the end of the road for me I'm not going if you say I have to go to Accra then I'm not going to I'd rather take my child home yeah do so people it's, it's understand the helpful. seriousness? Ah. Because I can't imagine someone in the UK going, oh, you know, it's the equivalent of, I don't know, Newcastle down to London and someone being like, oh, well, you know, I, I can't be bothered to take little Jimmy down to, to, to London. I'm being provocative here, but like, <laughs> what do parents know? What do parents think? when they're making that kind of decision, because I just think that the factors that they are weighing up are going to be radically different from Mr. and Mrs. Normal in Newcastle. Right. Uh, as I mentioned, there's lots of religious beliefs, uh, as I said. So, yes, someone might think that it might be a curse from someone or something they did. So, yes, if... I come here and I have to go all the way there to get treatment, then maybe it's a sign that, well, what is going to happen will happen. Another thing is, as I mentioned, it's not on insurance. Treatment is not on insurance. So the thoughts of a farmer, two farmers who barely make anything, taking their child to Accra maybe every week, a nine hours drive, they have to sit in the public transport, wake up at 4 a.m., probably like okay i know i might not be able to afford this what's the point anyway 
I think basically that, that those are some of the problems. There are some parents that when you tell them they are willing to go, they would want to do any and everything for their child. I think, I honestly think that every parent wants the best for their child. But what I think is best as a doctor is different from what they would think is best as the parents. I have come to learn that I shouldn't judge parents because I know that every parent wants the best for their child. But what I think is best is not what they think is best. And how difficult can that sometimes be, reserving judgment, particularly when you're in a situation where you see a patient doing very well on chemotherapy and they're halfway through the cycle or, you know, like a course of treatments and you don't see them again? Because I know that (laughs) does happen. Yeah, it does. It's difficult. I can't say. I mean, I try not to be judgmental, but yeah, there are days where I just flip and <laughs> like. So Cape Coast is like a satellite center because we don't do radiotherapy and stuff. We're just giving chemotherapy. So for those that would need radiotherapy and other stuff that we can't do, we have to send them over to Accra anyway. But one of the things that I learned whilst I was in Accra, and I know that the other treatment center which is in Kumasi does is we try to call the patients your due treatment next week and then two days to it your due treatment in two days so please report just to persuade them to come but yes some people would stop coming anyway and honestly there's not much you can do about it and unfortunately sometimes they return and when they return the child has relapsed and it's really really bad so yeah it's not easy to say I don't judge them, but sometimes we flip. And putting judgment to one side, if you see a child come back who the last time you saw they were doing really well because the treatment was effective, and then you see they come back and they've relapsed, how does that make you feel? As a human being, broken, had several instances like that, and each time it breaks me. You think each time it's it's okay, but it's not actually breaks you, especially when you know that it's one of those cancers where survival rates are really good. And unfortunately, with cancer, you know that once you start treatment and you stop, you're likely to have it worse when it comes back because maybe some of the cells are mutated and all of that. But yes, it breaks me every time. It breaks Mm. me every time. It's not something you get used to. No, it's something that I guess sort of speaks to a very different set of challenges and a set of rocks and hard places that I guess a lot of parents and families in Ghana are in compared to the UK because when I was going through treatment, pretty much the most important thing in my life was getting to the hospital and spending four days there every three weeks. Mm -hmm. But then there were so many things that made that incredibly easy. There weren't any financial constraints. There wasn't a nine-hour bus journey you know I I could cycle there that there was so many things that just made us a a no-brainer and so it's it's pretty heartbreaking when you think that these things could be very avoidable and yet for very valid reasons in the eyes of those parents and those kids they're acting in a very different way right yeah true (laughs) and I'm wondering then I could imagine it it could be very demoralizing when you see all that you put all this work in you can see the positive impact it's having and then the outcome that you feel you know could have happened or pretty much know with a pretty high degree of certainty could happen doesn't 
how do you then pick yourself up? How do you then throw yourself into the next patient, the next child who comes along? Yeah, I think as doctors, even though we are not trained, like we are, we are not we are not taught some of these things in school. You learn it on the job. Like you just have to get up and then move on because you know that that next child might have a chance if the cancer the next child is coming with has a 90% survival rate, you're going to give it your all and make sure that they are part of those 90% that survives. And every child is different. You don't judge one child based on the decisions that another child's parents made. Every child is precious to their parents. So at the end of the day, you have to give it your all for every child that you see. You have to handle them differently, even though the patient you saw before might have broken you. That seems to be so important to start from scratch with each new patient each new sort of parents that relationship and not come into it with prejudices of going oh I I could just imagine you know the way someone dresses oh you're clearly you know not going to turn up for the full sets of treatment I can imagine it would be very tempting to it would be very tempting to do that yes but you have to take each patient differently and I'm wondering what challenges so we talked a bit about the patients and the children that you treat but you started taking responsibility i suppose for this satellite center as a oncologist pediatric oncologist in training what were the challenges in setting it up and building this expertise and getting chemotherapy and reagents and the equipment that you needed over because i'm guessing it wasn't straightforward no, it wasn't quite straightforward. One of the things that we do here a lot, unfortunately, is that we try to adapt. When the ideal is not available, the available becomes ideal. That's uh, the words of one of my mentors. He always says that that when the ideal is not available, the available becomes ideal. So that's how we work with things. So when I came back to Cape Coast, um, most of they were treating some adult cancers and no childhood cancers at all. So this would mean that most of the drugs were not available. Even up to date, talking to you, most of the drugs are not available in Cape Coast. I sometimes have to make orders from Accra and then they send them through a a courier or something. And then we don't have like a daycare where you can just come and get your medication. So we actually see the patients that on the ward, there's a reception area, and then we just sit there and run a daycare there. So we made sure most of them come on Mondays. So on Mondays, everyone knows that it's chemo day. <laughs> they just come in, we find the side ward, and then thankfully we have an oncology pharmacist that does the adult mixing, and he seems well-versed. Uh, so we can give him our medications and then he helps prepare them. Uh, there are some nurses that are willing to take up the responsibility to set up the chemotherapy drug. There are some of my colleagues, my junior colleagues, that take up the responsibility to see the patients. But it's, I've also noticed that it's been a learning point for most people because at first, if you wanted to know anything about pediatric oncology in Ghana, you'd have to go to Accra or you'd have to go to Kumasi. But now because Cape Coast has a medical school and the students actually get, get to learn because now we are seeing pediatric oncological cases 
yes, it wasn't very easy. It's still not easy because we don't, we honestly don't have much setup, but we try to work with everything that we have. And even uh, for some of our surgeries, we have to get a pediatric surgeon from Accra to come and do the cases. I mean, some can be done in Cape Coast, but some like the Wilms tumor, that's a cancer of the kidney in children. We have to get a specialist who comes from Accra to do them. And did you ever get any pushback from members of the team that we're not a pediatric oncology ward here? We This isn't what we do. This is too difficult. This is what Accra does. Did you get any pushback or is actually everyone on board? I was so lucky. I was really lucky. I have a team that is willing to learn. I have a head of department that was so supportive. Our medical director was so in for it. Uh, my junior colleagues were like, oh, we are willing to do this. The truth is when you tell someone that a child has cancer, the first thing that comes to their mind is, oh, my God, why does a child has, have cancer? Is there something? Is there anything I can do to help? So thankfully, it's actually there was no pushback when it comes to the human resource. It's actually everyone has been supportive so far. My nurses have been so, so supportive. So it sounds like with setting up a new clinic or even a satellite center in Cape Hope, it's going to be difficult enough doing it by yourself. Do you get help from outside sources? Yes. Um, Yes. Uh, Thankfully, uh, World Child Cancer, which is an NGO in the UK, comes in to help with transportation, some diagnostics and some treatments. And recently we have a few individuals that call and reach out and try to adopt children through the chemotherapy treatment. So they adopt, when they say they adopt them, they are hoping to pay for their chemotherapy sessions and then we have other local NGOs. There was this NGO that was funded by a parent who lost her daughter. It's called the Viva Texan Foundation and she also comes in. She says she's adopted the pediatric oncology units in Cape Coast so she helps with the treatment of the children. But World Child Cancer is doing a great job. They're also helping with training of the pediatric oncology specialist. They also help in training pediatric oncology nursing nurses and yeah they are helping with capacity building when it comes to that given there are lots of long distance journeys which cost money if the world child cancer help with that that can be a big help and then also with is it paying for the chemotherapy drugs and stuff is that physical funds or is it more kind of the training and mentorship or is it both they also pay for physical like for diagnostics and then treatments Mm -hmm. for for patients yeah they do that Mm -hmm. too yes this is really really cool to hear that this is one of the things that i guess i find quite striking is that Ghana isn't a country with tons of resources, not, you know, tons of financial resources. And yet it seems like you can make a very significant difference, a pretty big difference. And this seems to have come about not necessarily through creation of more money, but positive will, someone willing to sort of take a lead on these things and then also bring other people along for the journey. And I'm just wondering how you managed to do that. (laughs) I would say I've been I'm a bit lucky and I'm able to draw people to I am able to convince people to do what I want. What's your secret? 
I have no idea. <laughs> I've been able to convince people do what I want, and that has quite helped. And well, thankfully, everyone has a pot- positive outlook to these things, and a lot of people are willing to help. Not so much with the finances, <laughs> but when it comes to the human resource, we've been fine. Uh, yeah, so far, that's how it's been. <laughs> One of the, the other things that I find quite interesting from having spoken to you, Ella, and then also done some background research. This is not something you sort of t- talk about very much, but you would you were talking about the difficulties of children affording healthcare, and this could be just something like where you say, "Well, I'm already a doctor. I'm doing my bit. That's enough." But you went further and you founded Boafo Philanthropy Organization, which funds the costs of treatment for, for, for kids. And Boafo, it means it helper, right? In Twi, the local language? Yes, it does. That this is me having done my prior research. <laughs> <laughs> well, but I, find... I didn't think you'd see that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I find it very interesting of what drew you to not just simply say there's a problem, but then to do something about it. Right. I think when I was a houseman, I think both started when I was a houseman, especially in pediatrics. Again, I hadn't thought about doing pediatrics. I hadn't thought about doing pediatric oncology. But when I was a houseman in pediatrics, I noticed that most people, not just cancer cases, actually, I didn't see a lot of pediatric cancers when I was doing house job, but just cases that you see on a daily basis. There was issues with treatment. There was issues with diagnosis. And it was all about the money. So the question was, if this patient went out there to ask people for money, they'll probably not want to help because they don't know the background. But if you stand in the gap as a doctor and you mention that the patient needs money for this, and you as a physician know, you know, very well that it's a, a, it's a disease that a child would survive, then probably people would listen to you. And that was how Boafo was born. I, I, one of, I spoke with one of my colleagues who was in for it, and then we started something small. I mean, right now, I've, not, I've honestly, honestly not had so much time for Boafo. It's sort of taking the back seat because I've worked with other people who have organizations that try to raise funds and I've become a bit pediatric oncology bias but yes we still try to raise funds for other children who can't afford their Mm. treatment and so you saw that you were really in a gap where you could perform a role that no one else was performing that because you weren't the patient you weren't asking for money but you were in a respected position and you understood the patient's position right you were going to have the respect of people who might have some money to provide. Yes. And so you yes. could be that bridge. Yes. Where do you find time for all of this? I, I'm just sort of thinking that there's always so many reasons of why one can't do this good thing. You know, I don't know, I was flossing my teeth this morning or something, but no, but seriously, you know, where do you find the time? What are your motivations that means that you prioritize this as opposed to watching a movie? Or, you know, hanging out with friends because it takes time. Right. 
trust me, it does. It actually does. But the truth is, I grew up in a home where parents did a lot of mission work. And what I watched them do as I grew up was helping people. And you would see the joy on the faces of these people that, that have received the help. You see that you feel the gratitude. They can't pay you back, but you know that they are very grateful for what you've done. And if you see a child that has malaria and needs uh, maybe blood, and they probably the parents can't get people to donate blood or something, and you are able to stand in the gap and make sure that that child receives what they have to receive at the end of the day. When that child survives, the thank you, that gratitude alone that you get from the patients or the, the parents or seeing this child jump home at the end of the day is, is, is enough. Uh, it's enough motivation for me, honestly. It's enough motivation. It blew my mind when I started sharing my story and seeing the impact that that had and the, the positive difference that one's actions can have on another's yeah. life. And that became for me, and I think still is, and it sounds like it is for you as well, just an incredibly motivating factor. And I know this is something that you've said before, that you know, what drives you is that you can make a difference. And when you get up in the morning, you know, I'm, I'm quoting here, you say to yourself, I, I can do this, I can make a difference. Yes. And that to me seems like such a positive mantra and my, my final question of this conversation is on those days where you get up in the morning you say I can make a difference and throughout that whole day it feels like things aren't going right what still helps you believe that you can make a difference because this is something right. I struggle with that sometimes I feel I'm doing a great job d doing a cycle ride and then other times I'm like, I can't even put a sentence right. together. I can't even say the word pediatric, you know, like I can't do anything. Um, that was a fluke just then. So for you, what keeps you going when it doesn't feel like you are making yeah, it's, a difference? It's actually interesting that you asked this question because the whole of this week I have been so low. I felt like I have not made as much of a, of a difference as I wanted to make. But then at the end of the day, I sit down and I try to count the blessings, the, the little things that I don't think are so big that actually change someone's life. Maybe today I wasn't able to help pay for a child's treatment, but was my knowledge able to save another child? Yes, it was. And yes, that child is alive. Um, because we put in the knowledge, we put in the skill, and that child is doing okay. Maybe we couldn't pay for treatment for that child, but the child is still alive because we put in the skill and then we put in the knowledge. So at the end of the day, you shouldn't only look at the big things that you make. Every, uh, every little thing counts. And if you always just want to look at the big picture, then you're never going to appreciate the little things that you do in people's lives. I think that's very powerful to focus on even small details and to see you how you've had a positive impact in a in a small way, maybe even in a yes. tiny way. And while sometimes the big picture can be the one that captivates and inspires, mm -hmm. 
it can actually be sometimes very unhelpful if you constantly use that as your your benchmark. Right. right. I think that's something that uh, I, I'm going to try and focus on and take forward as, as well. And that even a pronunciation, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> uh, we all have pronouncing pediatric correctly. <laughs> that's that's a win. And if I can make someone laugh from uh, yes, screwing it yes, up, then that's also a win. If you can make someone um, smile, or maybe someone had a bad day and you couldn't <laughs> pronounce pediatrics and it made them laugh, you've done something. Yeah, absolutely. We've all got work <laughs> to do. <laughs> and I, I'm going to cheat uh, and ask one more question. And we just talked, I suppose, we just touched on the bigger picture. But on that, what's the future do you see? What is the future that you are you are working towards that you hope to see in Ghana, partly through your own actions and your your own future being part of that, and also more broadly in 10, 20, 50 years time, the pediatric oncology scene. Okay, so uh, as a whole in Ghana, I hope that every child, irrespective of their background, irrespective of the status that their parents are, I'm hoping that every child has equal rights and equal access to health care and irrespective of the disease that that child suffers. Yes, it's in the Constitution, it's in the Child Act that every child has the right to health care. But what happens on the ground is actually not, is, is actually not that that is written. So I'm hoping that in the next few years, every child, irrespective of status, irrespective of background, has access to health care. And for pediatric oncology, I'm hoping that those 1,300 children would be seen by more than five pediatric oncologists. Um, hopefully, with time, there'll be many more centers, there'll be available treatment, there'll be uniform protocols, People wouldn't have to make those journeys. And pediatric cancers will no longer be a stigma in Ghana. Would have made so much noise that everyone knows that if they see this, uh, they should take, think pediatric cancers and not stigmatize children who suffer from cancer. Right. And you're going to be one of the future pediatric oncologists to add to the five. Yeah. Yeah, hoping so. <laughs> I think they're in safe hands if they've got you on the team. Thank you. So, uh, Ella, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting today. And as you know, I ask every guest for their most significant or favorite place, piece of music, and book. And I would love to know yours. So, for you, where is your your favorite or most significant place? Uh, my favorite place, it's actually in Cameroon. I, I, I mentioned before, I actually grew up in Cameroon. And there's this place, it's called Limbe. Now, Limbe is a town that is at the foot of the mountain. And also just, there's the ocean and the foot of the mountain is just at the where the ocean begins it's so beautiful it's so calming growing up as a child my parents would when they have time out of their busy schedules they'll take us there and we'll sit there with myself and my sisters and just watch the sea and sometimes look at the mountain um it just brings back memories i have so many beautiful memories of that place and they had the best food there too so 
Wow. It sounds like <laughs> quite an incredible okay. place. I really would love to visit. <laughs> sure. What is your favorite piece of music? Right now, well, it's almost always been, it's titled A Hat That Forgives by, I think it's called Vanshan Mitchell. I, <laughs> again, with this job, you tend to judge people a lot. So I needed something that would remind <laughs> me that I needed a hat that forgive that forgive easily. Yeah. Oh, do you listen to it to remind yourself and just say yes? I do. Hold back the judgment. I and, do. I actually <laughs> do. It's, it's a song, and it works. Music works most of the times. Let's tell you. <laughs> So yes, it's a song I listen to quite often, and yeah, I think it does. I am not the one who bears grudges. I don't hold things against people. It's helped me quite quite a lot. Yes. And your favorite book? Oh, uh, my favorite book is Half of the Yellow Sun by Chimamanda. She's an African writer. I, I love how she tells the story. It's, it it talks about the Biafran War and how they went through those challenges and how they were able to live through everything. And at the end of the day, the sister that lived did so well and uh, did so many things and faced up all the challenges that came her way. So I love that book so much. <laughs> and did it have an impact on you reading it? It sounds like a powerful book. Yes, it quite is. It's two young women typical African culture. Yes, it was an inspiration. I love it. I am literally going to put it onto my Kindle right now. I've been looking for a book to read. It's going on there. (laughs) Half of the Yellow Sun. Sun. Ella, it has been a real pleasure chatting with you on Facing Up. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, experiences and insights. Thank Thank you so much, Luke, for having me. So grateful. Thank you. It's <laughs> been a real pleasure. <laughs> and that was my conversation with Dr. Ella Amoako. Thank you, Ella. And thank you so much for joining us. One of the things I'm going to take from it is that Ella didn't simply wait to be a pediatric oncologist, to be a senior consultant, to have two decades of experience behind her. She saw that there was a need. She saw that she could do something about it. And despite some people perhaps thinking, oh, I'm not nearly ready enough to do this, she dived in and she made a difference. And I feel that her mantra of I can do this, I can make a difference is one that is so, so important. And at least for me, it's inspiring. Ella's work is in part supported by World Child Cancer, a fantastic charity that the Bristol to Beijing Cycle Ride has supported. And if you would like to support it too, then please do check out the show notes. And in the description there, you will find a link to donate and support World Child Cancer, the work that they do in Ghana. And I have also personally visited their centre in Pristina in Kosovo and can attest to it being an incredible and uplifting place where change is made in the most challenging of circumstances. Thank you so much 
for listening to this week's episode. Please do share this. Please do subscribe. Do rate us. Do tell everyone that you know about the Facing Up podcast. I would love for this podcast to reach as many different people as possible, but it needs you to help us and to make this happen. So I would massively appreciate it if you could reach out to your network and share the Facing Up podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>